0: Good again. I don't know how you figure all this stuff out, but thanks for doing that. <coughs> Let me pray for us, and we will get started. Oh, Father, we do thank you for the rain. Uh, we humbly continue to ask you to send more. We need a season of rain, and for it to come gently so it soaks in and not, uh, it doesn't just run off. Uh, but we know that you know what you're doing, and so we trust you, uh, but we do ask Uh, that you would send us a wonderfully long season of rain. I pray that your spirit would be here tonight and refresh our souls as this rain kind of refreshes our nostrils and just our mood uh, to know that there is rain about. Uh, Would your spirit come and do the same thing for us this evening through your word? Uh, We would ask you to do that too. Be with us as we finish off 1 Samuel. Teach us what we need to hear, what we need to know. And would you please change us uh, from the inside out to look more and more like Jesus? We love you, and we thank you, and we pray for these things this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty, 1 Samuel. Still talking about the monarchy. Uh, There is, we've we've talked before from uh, the book of Exodus and from numbers. There is a wilderness before the promised land. Remember when we talked about that's where people waste their lives, is out in that wilderness. Well, it won't surprise you to learn that there is also a desert within the promised land. Now, the desert before the promised land was where people waste their lives, wilderness place we don't want to be. The desert within the promised land is a place God sends people to help them grow and develop. Some of you are saying, because you're kind of like lawyers. Prove it. Jesus. Where was he sent? Into the wilderness for 40 days. By whom? God the Spirit of God compelled him to go into the wilderness. Oh, other holy people have gone into the wilderness in the Scriptures where they were, it could have been for correction, as we talked about last time or the time before. Maybe there was something that needed to be corrected. Usually it's for perfecting. They're not quite all the Lord wants them to be yet, and so he uses that desert, that wilderness inside the promised land, to accomplish his purposes. If it could be done any better way, God would have picked it. This is his best way to do certain kinds of growth. And so, tonight, David is going to be led into the desert within the promised land, to grow him up, to develop his character. And so we're going to take a look at that. I'm going to take all of these chapters and try to develop some themes out of that. We're not going to go necessarily verse by verse, but to try and develop some themes about the desert within the promised land. So David is going to be led into the desert. Now, what has God promised him? Well, he's promised him that he's going to be king. How do we know that? Because he's already been anointed. So, here's David. He's been anointed. That's God's promise. You will be king. Problem? He's not finished with Saul. So, David has a promise out here, but it's going to require faith and patience to get to that point. And so, God takes him into the desert To begin growing his character. Great story. Very applicable. You'll get it immediately. But this is what God is doing with David. Now the desert in the promised land can have one of two effects. It can grow you up. Improve, enhance, increase your godliness. It can also work against you as it does in the life of Saul. So we're comparing and contrasting Saul and David in the same desert and seeing the different impacts that the desert has on them and how they step into the desert and what it does to their lives. So God has promised David something and now he's led him into the desert. It says in the beginning of chapter 22, So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adulam. Uh, This is out in the desert. So his whole band of mighty men is moving. He's going to have to wait for God to act. He's in the desert of Judah. Circumstances have gone upside down on him. He didn't expect this. He's gone from favorite, Saul's favorite, to a fugitive. He's gone, or he's carrying the responsibility to lead and provide for his maybe four hundred, at maybe six hundred man family. So there's men, women, children going along with him. He's got a huge number of people he's got to take care of. He's definitely not where he thought he'd be. He gets anointed. He's thinking, we're going to walk up to the palace. Here we go. No, not so much. So he's not where he thought he would be. And it's going to take 10 years in the desert to make David into the man that God wants to be his king over Israel talked to people before and they say you know how long how long was Saul chasing David around in the desert and I said well if I told you would it, would you be surprised oh yeah was it like a week was it like a month I said no it was like 10 years what <laughs> 10 years David is in the desert has David done anything wrong what is this journey about for David perfecting preparing, getting him ready to be the king. God's also going to use it in another direction for Saul. But this is going to take 10 years. Big idea for tonight. When God leads David into the desert, David has to wait for God to lead him out. If you like reading, um, Eugene Peterson has a great book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. If you haven't read that, that's another great book to put on your list. Um, That's what's going on right here, is maturity is only developed in the laboratory. It's not developed in the classroom. It's developed in the laboratory. And the laboratory looks like a desert. And when God leads you into a desert, then you have to wait for God to take you back out. In the in-between time, it's a long obedience in the same direction, even though your circumstances don't seem to change. When God leads David into the desert, David has to wait for God to lead him out. Because we're going to see over and over tonight in this lesson, it takes faith and patience to receive everything God has promised us. Faith and patience to receive everything God has promised to us. David is going to find this lesson out tonight, but over the next ten years in his life. Well, what are some things that the desert can produce? Then, one of the things it can produce is godliness, and so I'm going to look at chapters 22 through 27 and 29 through 30 and talk about some themes for David, and then I'll use a couple other chapters to talk about Saul. So first, the desert can produce godliness. We've seen in lots of these different little vignettes of David that he's obeying God's word. This is not coming from just one of the, one of the verses in one of these parts of the chapters. This is coming from all of these chapters, kind of a the theme He honored his parents. Remember, he sent them off to the king of Moab and said, Can they stay here and keep will you keep them safe? Because Saul's chasing me down. And the king of Moab says, Yep, keeps them. And so off David goes. So he's honoring his parents. He honors the office of the king. Twice that's recorded in here, David could have killed Saul, right? There might have been more times, but two are recorded. David honored the office of the king. Both times, what did he say? Far be it from me to take the life of the Lord's anointed. Even though, I mean, can you imagine this? His guys are going, he's placed him into your hands. Take him, kill him. David goes, not going to do it. I'm going to wait on God. God will take care of this in God's time. And David backs up and trusts God. He took appropriate, responsible action throughout these different uh, vignettes of the chapters. And he wouldn't murder Saul. He puts his faith in God's character. There's a couple of different times, at least, where he seeks God's counsel and will. Are these the people of this city, this little town, are they going to betray me? Yep, they're going to. okay. <laughs> I won't go there. Another time, he's um, uh, at Ziklag. Remember when the um, Amalekites came in and and raised, R-A-Z-E-D, raised Ziklag while he was out on a fighting some people, and the the people, because all of their their wives and children and everything they owned got taken. And it says, and they thought about stoning David. (laughs) Um, But David strengthened himself in the Lord. And he sought God. What should I do? And so God told him, here's what to do. So he seeks God's counsel and God's will. And he expresses his trust in God through psalms. And we'll see some of that next week. Some of the psalms that David wrote. When he's running around out here in the desert. But as you read them. You have two weeks remember. Two weeks to read 150 psalms. It's only 75 a week. You can do it. You can do it. 15 a day. Easy. Start now though because Psalm 119 will take you a whole day. So he seeks God's counsel and God's will. He expresses his trust. When you read these psalms. Whoa what a heart you get. David's heart for God. It's a wonderful thing to read. He humbles himself before men, especially when he was at Ziklag um, and the guys want to stone him. Um, He he received the rebuke, took responsibility for his actions, and then he seems to have received God's mercy and grace and they went off and found the Amalekites and did them in. But... David is amazing. Psalm 141, yeah, 141 verse 5, says this. Let the godly strike me. It will be a kindness. If they correct me, it is soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it, he says to the Lord. Is that your attitude toward critique? David modeled for us how we should receive rebuke if we've done something wrong. I'm not sure David did something wrong, but the guys were pretty upset. So I love how he took responsibility, and then God was very merciful and gracious to, not only to him, but to them. He's generous with God's provisions. Remember, there's 200 guys who say, we can't run any farther. They had to run 10 miles after a long day. They have to run again. And 200 of them stop at the river and say, we'll watch the supplies, and the other 400 guys go on. And then they defeat the Amalekites, and the 400 guys come back, and they go, you didn't fight, you don't get any of the goodies. And David says, no, that's not how we're going to do it. Everybody share and share alike. And so he distributes uh, gifts to everyone, including the people who watched the bags and the people who fought, and that established a principle in Israel. And this, so they note that. This is where that little thing about the people who fight and the people who watch the, the luggage <laughs> everybody shares in the spoils. That came about because of this, this little thing in Ziklag. So David is generous with God's provisions. The other people he shared it with because probably the Amalekites were raiding all the, a lot of different little towns around there. And so when David gets his spoils, what does he do? He takes them around to different the different city elders and leaders and rulers, and he gives them some of the spoils too. Very, very, a great way of um, massaging relationships. So he's generous with God's provisions and how he shared the spoils and gave gifts to others. He shows mercy to his persecutor. Mercy to his persecutor. I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to take revenge. Uh, There's something, shows up in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, whose job, (laughs) whose job, whose job description includes revenge? God's. Revenge is mine, says the Lord. What if there's someone who's done something, you know, if David's going, but Saul wronged me. God says to David, revenge is mine. Let me work it out in my time and in my way. You don't need to do it. Who else could David have taken revenge on? The fool, Nabal, if you got to read the chapters. Remember Nabal, the fool. And remember, David is, Rrr. David gets mad, but who steps in? Abigail, wonderful Abigail steps in and goes, whoa, 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 <laughs> my lord, the king shouldn't do this. Let God take care of it. You don't, you know, don't soil your hands taking care of the fool. God has a plan, probably. What happens? God takes care of it, and pretty Fast. So, David is—he's uh, relinquishing his uh, probably desire for revenge, and he releases it to the Lord. And he remains courageously patient. Not only did he leave revenge with God, but reward. Gosh, I like the applause of men. Do you? Do you even know what I'm talking about? <laughs> of course you do. The applause of men, the the accolades of people. Mm. Mm. Remember, Cody talked about the who was the guy? Um, he got eaten by worms. You know, it's the voice of a god. <laughs> and the guy goes, "Yeah, that's me." <laughs> worms. These kinds of things are these are bad. And so he's teaching David how to um, receive compliments as well as receive criticism, because for leadership you get both. I had a fellow come up to me when actually he wrote a letter. This is twenty years ago, and there was a particular leader with uh, leader in our church with whom this fellow had issue, and. Um, so he, he wrote in, and it's the proverb that says, um, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And you go, what does that mean? So I get this letter. And this fellow, he wrote me a letter. And he said, um, I've always understood, and he names this other leader, that this other leader, da 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 but that you really run the church. This is is how his letter starts. And then he proceeds to tear down the leader. What is he doing? Wounds of a friend are better than kisses from an enemy. This enemy is kissing me. He's trying to butter me up. He's trying to get me to believe his view of things. So that, I don't know what I would do, but so that I would do something, I suppose, or at least take his side. Man, garbage like that, you just got to, don't play that game. Don't play that game. Leave revenge and reward with God. I don't know what, uh, I don't know how God's reward system works exactly, but I agree with Paul. Paul. And he says in one little passage, he says, what do I have that I haven't received? What do I have that I haven't received? Do I have something to claim about my first birth? You know, brown hair, hazel eyes, magnetic personality, handsome, good looks. Have I done anything for all of this? Not one thing. The Spirit of God, as we've talked about before, decided to give me whatever he gave me at my second birth. What vote did I get in that? None. What do I have that I haven't received? Nothing. If I just serve as a f- faithfully and as well as I can, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's who he's made me to be. What credit is there to me? None had zero input into my first birth i've had zero input into my second birth <laughs> bill go get them why are you looking for a reward i've already given it to you it's called salvation it's called eternity with me go get them tiger <laughs> sometimes like, maybe we can get a little too caught up in i think there are rewards but sometimes like if there's a reward to be had i'll wait for the lord to give it why should i want it now Lots of things the desert can produce. Good things that they, these things got produced in David. Uh, I want to show you some things for when you go to Israel. Not if. When you go to Israel. Here are some things you're going to see. One, you're going to go to the oasis of En Gedi, which is one of the places that David fled. And you say, you know, wow, look, it's... How are those trees growing in the middle of the desert? Well, it's because in this marvelous little oasis, there's a lot of water. And do you see? Now, I, this is, you know, when you, the guide, the guide says, see that cave? That's where David was with Saul. I don't know that David was in that cave. But that is a cave when Saul went to relieve himself. <laughs> They, they're running around back here in caves. And so David and his men are hiding in there. And that's when he has the opportunity. Okay, amazing. You're going to see Getty when you go there. And you're going to love it because you're walking on the moon and it's about 8 zillion degrees out there if you go at the wrong time of the year. Uh, and you'll be refreshed when you get to N'Gedi. It's a wonderful little place, so look forward to that. Uh, Godliness. Here's what the the desert can produce. This as well as self-restraint. Self-restraint. David restrains himself multiple times and grows in that um, skill. The skill of self-restraint. I believe it's Stephen Covey said... You'll never lead anyone farther than you've led yourself. That is a true statement. And that's what God is doing with David in the desert. You'll never lead anyone farther than you've led yourself. If you haven't led yourself very far, like let's say 1 to 10, if you've led yourself to a 3, don't think that you're going to lead people at five, six, seven, eight. This is not going to happen you can lead somebody, you can lead a one or a two if you're a three. If you're a six, you could probably get up through five, maybe even six. You'll never lead anybody farther than you've led yourself. And so developing in character these kinds of things, being humble, being generous, being merciful, being courageous, having self-restraint, those kinds of things are the deep, Character God can grow in the desert this is what he's growing in David this deep, deep character that seems to be only able to be developed in the desert and you say, "Well, okay, was there any other New Testament example of a person where that happens yes, besides Jesus Paul. Paul seems, there's three years that we can't really account for. It seems Paul was in Arabia, probably, being taught by Jesus in the desert. Paul even goes off into the desert to learn how to grow. The deep character God grows in the desert. It's the place he grows it best, but it's not fast. Uh, What do we say these days? um, It's not microwave, right? This is not microwave character. It produces godliness for those who are inclined in that direction. The desert can also produce, on the other side... Dullness and defeat. And so if you look at chapter 28 and chapter 31, these are more focused on, on Saul as the main character. And so what's happening to Saul in the same desert? Dullness and defeat. God is now silent toward Saul. He's not talking to him anymore. Why? Because Saul has continued to be disobedient to God. And Saul is kind of like Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Saul is kind of living life that way. And so God says, why talk to you? You don't listen to me. You don't obey me. There's no reason I should talk to you anymore. Saul remains disobedient. Saul is now desperate to hear from God. What has he done in in his kingdom? Which is a good thing. He's banished, or at least he's put under penalty of death, um, all mediums and spiritists, right? Uh, That's a good thing. But everybody knows where to go find one when they need it. And so Saul just has has to ask a couple questions and he finds out where there is one because he is in a place of desperation and despair. He's unprepared to lead, to fight, or to die. So he goes and he finds a medium. Now, everyone wants to know, was it really Samuel? Uh, I cannot tell you what this is. I don't think so. But what is it? I don't know. I don't know. There's no way to call someone back from the dead. So what is it? don't know. Is it something that God um, put together for Saul to speak to him that way? Possibly. I can't answer the question. I'd love it if someone wants to write a paper. I'd love to read it. Autograph it for me. I promise I will read it. I'll even grade it for you if you want. Uh, but this is, a, this is one of those mysterious things in Scripture. The, a medium has no real power. Even if they were possessed by a, an evil spirit, they don't have the power to call someone from God's side. Nope. It just that's not even a true statement. Can't happen. So what is, what is the Samuel? Uh, I don't know. But it communicates truth to Saul. Okay. Saul then loses his army, his sons, his life, and his honor. He finally, right, chapter 28 is all about this whole event. Um, and he hears, basically, he's heard what's going to happen to him. So he, he finally, uh, chapter 31, the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. He'll be on the final the fighting grew very fierce around Saul and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely, meaning fatally. Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. Now, he could have been afraid because he just didn't want to do it. Or he could have been afraid so in the manner of David saying, I'm not supposed to touch the Lord's anointed. So I'm not sure the armor bearer is necessarily in, 100% in the wrong here. I think I might have said, I probably don't want to do it just because I don't want to do it. But I think I would have said, you know, let's see what God's going to do here. I'll leave it in God's hands. So the armor-bearer basically leaves it in in God's hands. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. (laughs) Done. When his armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. When the Israelites on the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled... And that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. The next day when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, because that's where they get their money, their spoils, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off Saul's head and stripped off his armor. Then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. They placed his armor in the temple of the Asheroths, and they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bethshan. But when the people of Jabesh Gilead—Jabesh Gilead was the first city that Saul went and rescued—when the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled throughout the night to Bethshan and took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them back to Jabesh, where they burned the bodies. Then they took their bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. So ends the life of Saul. David, on the other hand, has just come back from his raid. He's back to Ziklag, and he's handing out the spoils to the other people of Judah. Let's dive into 2 Samuel 1 for just a second. After the death of Saul, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites, underline that word, and spent two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from? David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened? David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled from the battle. Many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. How do you know Saul and Jonathan are dead? David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa, And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the enemy chariots and charioteers closing in on him. When he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. Uh, Who's making something up right now? (laughs) He responded, who are you? I am an Amalekite, I told him. Then he begged me, come over here and put me out of my misery for for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him, the Amalekite told David. For I knew he couldn't live. Then I took his crown and his armband and I brought them here to you, my Lord. What does this fellow think he's going to get? hoo -hoo, we're in the money, we're in the money. There's probably a reward. And I'm going to get it. David is going to be so happy that Saul is dead. David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, Where are you from? And he replied, I am a foreigner, an Amalekite, underlined the word, who lives in your land. Now, let's pretend that part is true. How can that be? How can there be an Amalekite living in, in Israel's land? Have you forgotten chapter 15? Just a few chapters back, Saul let some people live. Who were they? Amalekites. Why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one, David asked. Then David said to one of his men, kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You have condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed. Who left the Amalekites in the land? Saul. The sin we tolerate is the one that will attack us and potentially kill us. Saul left the Amalekites around. This fella, probably an Amalekite, definitely lied. But why is there an Amalekite running around in Israel? Because Saul let him live. Remember there were some that escaped? Saul didn't do what the Lord said and wiped all of them out. He left them. He let the ones who escaped be. And one of them comes back around, potentially, and is at least maybe there uh, when it happens. Saul tolerated the Amalekites, and it didn't work well for him. The desert can produce godliness, but it can also produce dullness and defeat, especially with sins that we struggle and forget or neglect to take to the Lord. And so when you go to Israel, you're going to go to the city of Beit Shon. And in Beit Shon, you're going to climb about one million steps until you get to the top, which is where we are taking this picture. And you can see it's a little higher than the surroundings because uh, it's, it's a hike up these steps, but you can do it. And you're going to encounter the walls of Beit Shan. Now, I can't tell you if they put up Saul here, here, here. He, I can't tell you where, where he was but that's where he was. This is where Saul's body was affixed to the wall, and the men of Jabesh came in and stole it off the wall and took it back to Jabesh Gilead. This is what they did. This is where they went. You will see it. It's an amazing sight to think right here. This is where a Bible character lived and died. Right here. What's the lesson for us? When God leads us into the desert, we have to wait for God to lead us out. God wants to teach David and you and me that it takes faith and patience to receive everything he's promised. Faith and patience patience, and while it would be presumptuous presumptuous of me to say, I guarantee you will wind up in the desert someday for some period of time, I think we've all been there or we are there, the desert. So are you in the desert? Maybe circumstances have gone upside down on you for no self-induced reason. Maybe you've gone from favorite to fugitive with someone. Some relationship has gone south. Maybe you've been betrayed by a former friend or loved one who may even still want to hurt you. Maybe you're in a place right now where it's just tough to scratch out a living. Or maybe right now you feel out of sight, out of mind, or just plain old shelved. You might be in the desert even tonight. What the desert can produce, godliness. James chapter 1 verses 2, I know this is the New Testament, but that's okay, right? It's still God's word. Dear brothers and sisters, by the way, who is James? Jesus' brother, brother. half-brother. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. It's always my first thought. (laughs) For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, meaning mature, needing nothing, or maybe you're ready for anything. What is a desert for? Godliness. But you have to step into it the right way. this is what the desert can produce. What does the desert require? A change of perspective. Remember, we first saw this lesson in Job. Change of perspective from how can I get out of this to what can I get out of this. If you're in the desert for no reason, in other words, you didn't put yourself in there through uh, some kind of disobedience, if you're in there for, I don't know why I'm in here, Lord, then there is something he wants to grow in you. And it shouldn't be, how can I get out of this? But what can I get out of this? Lord, grow me. I'm your servant. Grow me. I won't be able to lead anyone farther than I've led myself with you working in me. And so if this is what it takes for me to be able to have a little bit more, whatever you want to call it, influence in people's lives or something like that. Go for it, Lord. Do it. Remember the list of things Paul has been through? You know? How many times has he whipped? How many times was he stoned? <laughs> Shipwrecked at sea? But think about all the things this fellow went through. And this was the fellow God used to write A lot of the New Testament. He didn't take the guy who was the professor of the classroom. (laughs) He took the guy who had been boots on the ground, on the front line, and been in the desert numerous times. It requires a change of perspective, it requires faith. I have to trust and obey God's word. Remember, we talked about that? Trust and obey. Or there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trust God's goodness. Um, Not because my prayers are models, but remember we've talked before about I can uh, pray with hope. But I also have to pray with trust. If it were me, I would have it raining and filling up the aquifers and the rivers and the lakes and... My grass would be green and not dead, and my foundation would be level, not tipped like this. I wouldn't do this, but I don't know everything, and so what do I need to do? Trust God, who does know everything, and who does have good in mind. Lord, I don't understand why it's good to not have rain. I know, Bill, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'll trust you, Daddy. I'll trust you. You're trustworthy. You're faithful. You're good. I'd still make it rain. I know. But we're not going to do that. Leave it to me. I'll make it rain at the right time. We have to be able to trust God's goodness when sometimes what we see doesn't make sense. I have to trust God's ways. I have to stay the course without scheming. One of the things I want to do when I get into the desert is scheme my way out as fast as I can. I don't like the journey, I like the destination. (laughs) Guess who likes the journey? God. In fact, he says, Bill, the journey is kind of necessary. Can it go fast? (laughs) Bill, I kept David in the desert 10 years. Bill, what if David is a better man than you? That could be more than 10 years, Lord. (laughs) Do you trust me? Will you walk with me? stay the course without scheming. It's God who leads the godly out of the desert, just like it's God who leads the godly into the desert. It requires a change of perspective. It requires faith. It requires patience. There's that patience word again. (laughs) But it is a fruit of the Spirit. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, constant in prayer. And so he reminds us to be patient in prayer, patient in hope and joy, patient in mercy, humility, and generosity, patient in self-restraint, self-control. He wants me to remain patient and continue to let his spirit and his word do their good work. In me, he wants me to obey his word and wait for him to act. It takes faith and patience to receive what God has promised. I think I've read this to you before. I love this little verse. Perhaps it will encourage someone tonight. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. Let's see. 6. No, that's not right. That's a typo. It's verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Be encouraged tonight. There's not one thing you do that God does not see. Not one thing. However small, however hidden, however insignificant you think it is, there is not one thing that you do, especially for another believer, that God does not notice or record. And it says that he would be unjust if he doesn't do something with that in your life. I can tell you, God is not unjust. Trust him. Wait on him. He knows what he's doing, even though it's not always pain-free. It takes faith and patience to receive what God has promised. For next time, there it is. Read Psalms in black and almost white. Read the book of Psalms. You'll be blessed, however many you can get read uh, for the next two weeks. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll be finished up for tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us uh, a, a peek behind the curtain of David's life and, and also a, a, a peek behind the curtain of Saul's life. Um, help us to um, follow one as a as a junior example of the senior example of our Lord Jesus. And help us to be sober-minded about Saul's life um, and to not walk down those roads as tempting as they are for us uh, so many times Uh, would your spirit uh, lead us and guide us and direct us and empower us uh, to follow our Lord Jesus and that wonderful picture of junior Jesus David uh, that we get to see so often Um, in these chapters that we're studying right now. Uh, Thank you for that example. We need it. Would you do beyond anything we could ask or imagine in our lives this week, uh, transforming us more and more into the image of Christ who lives in us? Thank you, and we pray for this, and a great holiday in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in two weeks.